What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you got you? Scott Young is the author of the new book, Ultra Learning, Master Hard Skills, Outsmart the Competition, and Accelerate Your Career. If you want to accomplish more and stand apart from everyone else, you need to become an ultra learner. Get ready to learn about some of the biggest learning challenges Scott has undertaken and how you can become an ultra learner too. Making change transpire. That's the mission behind the most amazing tasting protein bar brand taking the nutrition industry by storm. That brand, they're MCT Co. And they make the most delicious, keto-friendly, all-natural collagen protein bars. If you're obsessed with the quality of food going into your body like I am, then head out and pick up these amazing bars jammed with 10 grams of collagen protein. They only have two to three net carbs, no added sugar, and loaded with high-quality MCT oil for the healthy fats from coconuts. Whether you're busy running the kids around from activity to activity, a professional athlete, or just someone looking for a great-tasting convenience snack, do yourself a favor, head to mctco.com and use code WGYT for 20% off your order. Scott, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. Great to be here. No, excited to have you. So I think we need to get our brains warmed up a little bit, get them going. And I'm always (laughs) interested how the guests begin their day. What do you do Mm. to get action moving? Well, I'm, I'm one of these people that I really like to work first thing in the morning. So that's kind of where I start. Oh, sometimes I have a cup of coffee or, um, you know, a little bite to eat first, but I tend to jump straight into work as soon as possible. Because for me, I feel those like, few hours in the morning are where the work gets done. Uh, my afternoons, I, I get things done, but it's usually harder to get the real kind of deep work that you need to do to really think hard about problems. So when you say you're doing your work during that time, what does that actually look like for you? I know, I know you're involved in a lot yeah. of different things. <laughs> well, it really depends on what, what project I'm working on. So, I mean, right now I'm having this podcast with you and I so I'm, I've been doing a lot of that. I've been having a lot of conversations about this book uh, recently. Uh, when I was writing the book, that meant getting to the coffee shop and doing research or doing writing, uh, get out of the house so that I could work on that. And then when I'm doing learning projects or, or doing the kinds of things that I describe in the book, then, uh, then, then too, I usually have a pretty full schedule and I like to try to do the hardest stuff. I don't know. I would say my like peak hours of productivity are probably around from like eight and nine till around 11 or noon. And then, then, then the afternoon and evening, I, I can still get things done, but it's, it's a little bit, a little bit slower. So you mentioned having multiple projects. You, you never know exactly which project you'll be taking on at that time. Do you have any non-negotiables though, no matter what the project you're currently working on, any things that are consistent for you? Yeah. So I, I'm a big proponent of habits and I think habits are a really important way to view and, and look at your life in terms of uh, a bunch of automatic behaviors that I think we kind of generally overrate how much we're actually making decisions when we do things. It's usually autopilot. It's usually based on habits. And so I've done a, a few different ways of, of thinking about habits, but over the last couple of years, I've been drifting towards uh the don't break the chain philosophy. I don't know if you've heard of that one, but the basic idea there is that you make a a small habit that you should do basically always that it's not, um, it's not something that you, uh, 
you know, sometimes you'll have a habit like, okay, I want to go to the gym and go regularly, but maybe you can't always put in an hour workout every single day. So you try to do it as consistently as possible, but you also forgive yourself if, you know, you get sick or you go on vacation or, or what have you. Whereas the don't break the chain thing is to try to reduce it to a smaller thing that you never break or that you ideally never break. And you just try to make the chain longer and longer. So I've been doing that for about probably about two years. I've been using that approach to, to habits. And so I have a few things on there from doing pushups to flossing to cleaning to, um, in terms of learning, I also have uh, doing some Chinese practice on there as well. So I have about probably seven or eight things that are on my daily, uh, don't break the chain list. No, I love the idea behind the don't break the chain. Have you actually found that implementing one of these little don't break the chain habits has led to, to bigger uh, habits and being able to stick to them more? Well, I think that the idea is that you want to have some kind of placeholder in with what you're doing. So the Chinese practice is a good example of that because I have it right now of sort of about 10 minutes and 10 minutes is a real like, you know, especially if we're talking about like listening to 10 minutes of audio or reading for 10 minutes, usually not too hard to do. I mean, even if the day gets really busy, stuff gets in the way. I mean, you can do 10 minutes right before you go to sleep. It's not that hard to do. And so I find that for those kinds of minimal habits, it works really well because you kind of don't have that, well, today is just too busy. I'm not going to do it today excuse because it's, it's only 10 minutes. But on the other hand, I find that if you keep up engagement so that it's something that you are doing at least a little bit, then there's lots of moments where maybe you'll do more, you know, maybe you'll be reading something interesting and you'll read more or you'll, you'll go a little deeper. And so I don't want to say that's the only approach to things that's successful, but I haven't found it at least successful on goals where you want to have a low level of continuous activity over a long period of time. So you want to do just a little bit, but con consistently, or if you want to kind of automate the getting started with something every day so that you're at least participating in it every day, even if that's not like a huge amount of time. Gotcha. Yeah, no, we'll dive a little bit deeper in this. But something I'm always intrigued about by people such as yourself who accomplish a lot and are constantly involved in many different things. So how do you describe it as what you do? Oh, wow. Yeah, that's that's tricky. That's tricky. So it's funny. It is actually got a funny joke about that because I've, I've evolved the what do you do for a living kind of response to things? Um, when I first started, so when I, I, well, first I was a student. So I, I just said I was a student and then I was doing this on the side. So I didn't really need to make that my, what am I doing? But then when I was no longer an official student, uh, I used to say I run an online business and I remember being, and this was when I was probably like 23, 24, I was doing this, uh, so just starting doing this. Uh, and I remember being at a, a bar somewhere and I was talking to some girl <laughs> that I had met, some woman I had met. And uh, I told her that I do this for a living. And she just looks at me and she's like, that sounds fake. Like that, is, that, does, that doesn't sound like a real thing that you do. And so it was just kind of like, hmm, okay, that's an interesting sort of piece of feedback to get from that. And so uh, usually these days I tend to focus on the writing. So I usually tell people I'm a writer. And then the follow-up question is like, what kind of writing you do? And then I, you know, well, now I've written this book so I can tell people that I've, I've written a book. But before I would usually say, I, you know, I have my own website and I write essays and, and things like that. Yeah, well, the, well, the book is ultra learning. It's, it's your newest piece of work. And I know you've done a lot of interesting and fascinating things leading up to the culmination of writing this. So I want to hear a little bit about your origin story. I mean, where did the fascination for you around learning begin? 
Yeah. So I've always been interested in learning. I think even as a kid, I, I was interested in learning stuff. I think that that interest has gone through different phases. So when I was in university, I was sort of writing and blogging at the same time. So I had a blog while I was in university. And just when your entire life is as a student, everything has to do with learning, then being able to learn effectively or to you know get more done with less studying it just naturally flows out of that because that's what you're doing all the time. And so, you know, just the way that, you know, there's lots of books about how to be productive at work. This is kind of the version of that for a student. And so I was interested in productivity and these topics in university because it just seemed natural to me to want to uh, be able to, you know, get the results that you wanted from school without a lot of stress and studying and all nighters and these kinds of things. So I gravitated towards that. And then around near, nearing the end of my university experience, I had the opportunity to go on a year long exchange in France. And so I was had this opportunity to study abroad and I was really excited about being able to learn French. I thought it would be really nice to come back and be able to speak another language. And I went there and I was kind of struggling with it a little bit. And this was in part because, you know, a lot of the things that I'd learned how to do, a lot of the ideas I had about learning were kind of still tied up in this idea of how do you do well in classes. And suddenly I'm like learning a language, not because I want to do well in classes, but because I want to be actually able to speak to people. And also because the environment that I was in, I didn't realize it really at the time um, that just going and traveling somewhere often isn't enough. And especially if you go somewhere for a long time and everyone around you speaks in English all the time, it can actually be quite difficult and frustrating to, to learn another language. And so around this time, I was kind of complaining about this to a friend from home. And he said, well, have you heard of Benny Lewis? And I said, well, no, who's Benny Lewis? Who's this guy? And so Benny Lewis has a website quite modestly called Fluent in Three Months. And it was about his challenge to try to learn a language as well as he could sort of aiming for fluency in a three-month period of time and he now speaks like 10 plus languages and he's devoted his life to it but this was sort of a project that he was doing and he was really my first introduction to this world of ultra learning which I talk about in the book and and talk about here which is not about how do you do well in classes just so you can you know get a good grade and pass an exam but how do you learn skills that you really care about that matter for your life and often using sort of unconventional strategies. And so I feel like uh, he was sort of my real first introduction because I've spent a lot more than three months in France and I didn't feel like I was progressing to fluency very quickly. I didn't feel like I was anywhere close to that. So just the idea that someone might be challenging himself to do this just sort of struck me as so outlandish and crazy that I knew I had to meet this guy. And so he was sort of my first introduction to this world of ultra learning that you know, not not this thinking about terms of school, but thinking about really how do you learn outside of the education system. And and so this sort of led to some of my own projects, but that was sort of really the, the genesis of the ideas for this book was, again, you know, uh, thinking about learning in this unconventional way. So once you discover Benny Lewis and, and the ability to learn language quickly, is that the first, call it learning challenge, you really dive deep on? Well, so it kind of is a little bit of a winding story for me because I did experience this and I did have the opportunity, like once I kind of got a better grasp of the method and the approach that he was using, I was able to improve um, my ability to learn France when I was staying, uh, learn France, learn French when I was staying there. Uh, but actually my first project was quite different and it happened after I finished that year long um, 
uh, experience. And, and after I'd graduated from university, I decided that I wanted to, um, basically, I wanted to reconsider what I had studied in university. So I think this happens to a lot of people. You go to school, you study something for a while, and then you think that it's going to be one thing, and it turns out to be something else. So in my case, I'd kind of wanted to be an entrepreneur. And I thought, you know, well, what better to study if you want to run your own business than business school, right? And it was only after taking it for a couple of years that I realized, actually, business school is mostly about how can you be a good middle manager in a large corporation? It's not really about how do you do very well at this? How do you start your own business? And so because of that, I kind of had this feeling of regret almost that I chose to study this. And so I was graduating and I was thinking about, well, what was the thing that I wanted to do instead of this? And at the time, I was really thinking that I, I should have studied computer science because I know that computer science is not the only route to entrepreneurship either, but at least at the time, it very much felt like, you know, the internet, doing things online, people like Mark Zuckerberg, Bill Gates, these are all people who knew how to make things. They knew how to make things with computer programs. They knew how, how technology worked. And that just seemed like a much more relevant skill than, you know, understanding HR rules or organizational charts or, or all the stuff that I learned in business school. And so I was thinking about this, but I think like a lot of people who studied something, you know, once you've been through an undergraduate degree, you're not super keen on going back to school for another four years, taking out student loans, living in a dorm room. You know, you had that experience. You don't necessarily want to repeat it. And so for me, I was trying to kind of decide what I wanted to do about this because I didn't really want to go back and get another degree, but I also wanted to know how to do these things. I wanted to be a better programmer. I wanted to be able to understand technology and, and all these sort of uh, ideas that would have been taught in that undergrad. And so around this time, I stumbled upon this class that was taught by MIT, but posted online for free. And so MIT has this platform called OpenCourseWare, where they just put tons of their material online for free. So you can just go on there right now and check out tons of actual MIT classes that they take. And, you know, some of the classes are more material than others, but they have well, basically this is what MIT students are using. And so I took one of these classes and I was very impressed by it. And there was just sort of this kind of light bulb moment where I thought, well, has anyone ever tried to do something like a degree before? Has anyone ever tried to learn what is in an MIT degree, but not going to MIT or not even going to university generally, but just trying to do it on your own? And so I was also thinking about Benny Lewis in this moment of sort of my first kind of mentor in this world of ultra learning. And I thought, well, what if you not only tried to do this degree, but you also try to optimize every facet of it so that you could try to do it as efficiently and effectively as possible? So some examples of that, uh, you know, normally when you're sitting through a class or you're listening to um, someone talking, you just have to listen to the whole thing. You have to listen to it from start to finish at the regular speed, whereas everyone knows if you're listening to a podcast, for instance, you can watch it at 1.5 times the speed or even two times the speed. And you can watch it whenever you're ready. You don't have to wait for the scheduled class or things like assignments. Normally you do the whole assignment, you hand it in, you wait a few weeks, maybe you get your results back. You've already forgotten what the questions were. Whereas if you have the solution key in the assignment in hand, you can do one question at a time and quickly get feedback. So it sort of evolved from not just being a project about how could you get the education on your own, but also maybe you could do it more efficiently. So this project evolved into what I called the MIT challenge, which was 
me trying to learn the equivalent of MIT's 33 classes that would make up their undergraduate curriculum. But instead of doing it over four years, I, I tried to do it in 12 months. So I did the first class in October of 2011, and I passed the final exam for the last class in September of 2012. That's pretty remarkable. There, there's a lot of different directions we could go here. First, I, I'm really curious, though, about taking that leap. It's one thing to think about the the MIT challenge and say, hey, I'd be really interested in learning this. But what makes you take that initial class and decide to try to do this in a year? Well, as I said, I think there's a lot of little influences that pushed me in this direction. So as I said, one of them was meeting Benny Lewis. So I think sometimes we just need someone to show us that something's possible or something is permissible to, to do something. And so for me, seeing him take on these projects, it also really got me thinking about the time of like, that's really cool. I really like that. I'd like to do something like that because I hadn't seen anyone do that before. And then the second thing I think that really uh, sparked my interest, particularly for this challenge, was I was looking online for people who had tried to do this specific thing, which is, you know, trying to do something like a degree, but um, without going to school, without doing that. And I couldn't find any real examples. I couldn't see any things of where someone had done something similar. And so, I mean, how often in life can you be the first person to do something? And so that really excited me just off the bat because I thought, you know, how cool would that be? And at the time as well, I was very much thinking that this was definitely going to be the wave of the future. And so for me, I, I was thinking, well, it's it's just a matter of time before tons of people are doing this. So it would be very interesting to be one of the first people to do it. And so... I think that was sort of part of the initiation point. And then I think also part of the initiation point is, again, just this sort of excitement of possibility. I think I talk about a lot of stories in the book of people who took on big challenges, not because they thought they were going to be successful necessarily, but just because, you know, how far could you go? What could you do if you really, really worked at trying to do this as effectively as possible? What would the end product be? I think it's just the case is so many of us don't take these things seriously or don't really try to go to that um, extreme. And the, the funny thing, as I document in the book, is that the people who really do take it seriously often go much, much further than they would have expected. So, you know, I have lots of examples in the book, but people like Tristan de Montebello, who, you know, he decides he wants to do an ultra learning project around public speaking. And sure enough, after seven months, he goes from having about zero experience to being a finalist for the world championship of public speaking in, in such a short period of time. Yeah, when you, when you said possibility, it really struck a chord with me, and I was actually having a conversation this morning with a, a neuroscientist, Dr. Uh, Tara mm. Swart, and we were talking about Roger Bannister and the four-minute mile. Oh, right, of course. And, and once he did that, people saw that that was possible, so it's just really interesting. So I guess I'm asking more about the mindset that's required to become an ultra-learner. How important, <laughs> and what is that framework that, that's required of this? So I think a lot of people who maybe are even listening to this right now, it's it sounds so extreme. It sounds so outside of maybe what their background experience is. I mean, if you were struggling in school, you didn't enjoy it that much, or maybe you tried to do this and it didn't work very well, it seems a little bit like, well, this has nothing to do with me. But I think the idea here is not to try to convert you into, okay, well, now you're going to be an ultra learner overnight and doing something truly world-class and, and incredible. But just in terms of using these examples as ways of rethinking how you approach things. And 
often what happens is that as you do something and you find the right way to do it and you are successful with it, that gives you the motivation to pursue future projects. So my example, for instance, is, you know, when I'm struggling with learning French and I hear about Benny Lewis, my idea was not, oh, oh, I didn't know that you could become fluent in three months. It was like, well, this is bullshit. There's no way that a person can do this. And it was only after meeting him, it was only after seeing what he was doing differently from how I was doing it. And in his case, one of the things that was a major difference is that I was surrounded by a lot of people who were speaking to me in English, whereas he was really creating this sort of immersive environment with tons of practice from the very first day, even when he wasn't that skilled yet. And so this was a, a real kind of departure from my method. And it turns out it makes a huge difference. And so flash forward a couple of years later, and I'm doing another big ultra learning project after um, my MIT challenge finished, I decided to try to do something similar to what Benny Lewis did. So I went with a friend. So this was a, a guy who just, I was just my roommate at the time. We just decided to do this project where we traveled to four countries, uh, Spain, Brazil, China, and South Korea. And the method that we used is that when we land in each of these countries, we only spoke the language we were trying to learn. We didn't speak in English to each other or to people we would meet. So we called it the, the no English rule. And it worked really well. And I would say that, especially for Spain, the first country we're at, which is uh, also a European language where we are, or it's a little bit easier to learn than, let's say, Chinese, we definitely reached a level of conversational fluency, which I think is kind of funny because if I go back to, you know, I don't know, five or six years before that when I was in France, that would have just seemed utterly impossible for me. So I think the mindset to cultivate is not one of, okay, now you have to go do this extreme thing and you have to be successful at it, but one of just being open-minded about what might be possible if you use the right approach and if you're using the right principles of learning. Yeah, one of the great things about hosting this podcast is what you just hit on, the ability for me now to rethink and have new approaches based on what the guests uh, help instill. Mm -hmm. and, and something you've said is, Ultra learning isn't easy. It's hard and frustrating and requires stretching outside the limits of where you feel comfortable. So I'm intrigued now. So you have to understand the possibility, but then also where you feel comfortable and pu pushing those limits. How important is that, getting outside of your comfort zone? So I wrote the kind of the framing of the book of calling it ultra learning and sort of really emphasizing the difficulty, not the difficulty in terms of I think I want to be careful what the way I say difficulty, that it's not difficult because most people can't do it. Um, it's the yes, not everyone's going to be able to, let's say, learn an MIT class in a week. But the method behind ultra learning is something that anyone could do. Rather, it's effortful and it's not usually the default approach to learning things. And it's not because, you know, you need to be a certain amount of smarts or you need to be a certain amount of kind of person in order to do this. Rather, the problem is that I think a lot of us have learned the wrong lessons about how to learn things that we've picked up kind of unconsciously a certain way of thinking about learning that it turns out isn't actually the most effective way that you can learn things. So it's, it's funny. I was just on Twitter today and I was just uh, tweeting back and forth about this um, recent study that came out that was showing that uh, active learning. So one of the principles I talk about in my book, which is called retrieval, which is basically this idea that testing yourself or, you know, trying to recall things from memory is much, much more effective if you want to be able to actually remember things than just reading something over and over again, which is what essentially most students do when they're studying all the time. 
And yet students tend not to like this approach. They don't like to be tested. They don't like to be challenged. They don't like to not know the answer to a question. And so they will purposely avoid doing situations where they might feel bad or fight might feel challenged. However, for the amount of time you spend, the amount of energy you spend, the activities that challenge and test you are much, much more effective for actually being able to acquire skills and being able to get good at things. So the ultra learning philosophy or the, the ethos that I try to describe in the book is recognizing that this tension exists, recognizing that sometimes the most effective thing you can do is going to be a little bit of frustrating or uncomfortable at first. But if you can build yourself the habit of going and pursuing these opportunities, you can actually learn things much more effectively than you've realized in the past. And so the, <clears throat> the example with students is really clear that if you practice Retrieval practice, if you practice practice testing, you will master the material and do much better on tests in less amount of studying time. But yet this isn't the default path because it is a little bit more strenuous. Yeah, I'm thinking about some of the, the strenuous things and the the uncomfortable things I have to push through to learn more. And mm. I'm really intrigued for you personally. What are, what are some of those difficult things you have to overcome uh, to, oh, to really tons. dive deep? There's tons. There's tons. So if we're talking about language learning, one of the classic examples, I mean, I'm going to assume right now that let's say you don't speak Polish, right? And so if we just said right now, okay, well, we're going to have a conversation in Polish. All right. And one, two, three, Polish. How would we even start? It would be very difficult. And so even if I go on Google Translate and type things out and I, I try to read them out, it might take, you know, five, 10 minutes for us to utter two or three sentences back and forth and, and go back through things. So this is very frustrating and difficult. But it turns out that doing things like this, you know, whether or not you're starting exactly at scratch or you have a little bit of practice first with just some words and phrases before you start having a conversation, the, the getting into immersion, the getting into having that conversation early on is super helpful because once you have that basis of, okay, we're actually trying to communicate about something, then every word you learn, every phrase you learn is because you need that phrase, you need that word, and because it fits into what you're trying to achieve in terms of your communication goals. And this is really important. How we mostly learn languages in school is, well, let's give a bunch of random phrases and vocabulary. Let's expect students to memorize them. Let's get them to work out some grammar exercises on a homework assignment and then mostly sit in class while the teacher lectures at us. And the problem is that this is not nearly enough practice and the practice that you are doing is often removed from the actual situations you care about. So you're not learning the words when you need them or as you need them in real situations, you're learning them just because they're on a list or they're in a book somewhere. And this extends to so much more than languages. Programming is like that. If you go to do programming classes in school, very often they will get you to write out computer programs with a pencil and paper as the final exam. This never happens in real life. Maybe you have to do a, a description of an algorithm on a, on a napkin or something, but you're almost always writing with your actual fingers on the on the keyboard you're looking up syntax when you forget it so the actual act of programming an actual computer program versus writing one is often quite different and so there are many situations like this where if you can take the right approach if you can use the right principles to learn something well you can get more effective results the challenge is just that this is often a little bit scary and difficult at first. So you have to know that, okay, yes, I am doing the right approach and I just need to push through it. And I am actually going to be learning more, even though it doesn't often feel that way intuitively. You mentioned when taking on the task of learning a new language, you, you learn those first words and then new words can kind of compound on top of that and the learning compiles on top of each other. How mm -hmm. important is that early knowledge base? 
So early knowledge base is important. And I think particularly for something like a language, like I just joked about Polish, but if if neither of us speak Polish, it's very difficult to say anything uh, in the beginning. And you often uh, essentially are just typing things into, let's say, Google Translate and reading them out. So you do need to have an early knowledge base. And I do find that for a skill like, like a language, for instance, I highly recommend doing a month of Pimsleur. Um, Pimsleur is a little bit more expensive, but it is much, much better than Duolingo. And I recommend it just doing one month just to get a little bit of that foundation. So, you know, you know, maybe a couple, like two, three dozen phrases, you really have them down and you can use them as kind of your foundation to start expanding and building outward. But I don't think that's the main problem for people. I think most people who have spent some time studying the language are very rarely, in the situation where, okay, I've done zero practice, now let's start a conversation. The problem is usually, oh, they've spent you know, a couple months or maybe they studied it in high school or they've done this or that. And so they have learned some things and they do have a little bit of a foundation. The problem is that they're not practicing or the problem is that they haven't maintained it or the problem is that they haven't you know, gotten used to the situation where they have to recall it from memory. They're just used to looking at it in their Spanish book or in their little textbook that they brought with them. And so all of these ingredients, if you can get the ingredients right for learning, then you really can learn more effectively than, than most people are used to. You mentioned the ingredients and some of the problems. And, and one of those problems I see often, and I'm guilty of this myself, is the self-talk. And I hear this a lot with, with people when they first go to a party, oh, I'm terrible at remembering names. And I want to know mm-hmm. what the negative impacts of self-talk, or I guess what the positives could be as well. So self-talk, I think, is important. I think one of the things that we do is we we work hard to preserve a self-image. So more than just the words that you say to yourself, you have a certain sense of yourself as being competent, as being successful, as being good at things. And I think especially as we get older, this uh, this sense of our own competence gets continually reinforced. So we spend more time with the things that we're good at. We avoid the things that we're not good at. And this isn't necessarily a bad process, but it can create this identity where you have to be good at things. You have to look like you're good at things at all times or you feel really bad. And the downside of this is that very often to learn new things, you have to be bad at them to start. And so I think where where we often have this challenge is that people will say things like, oh, I'm no good at learning languages or, oh, I, I suck at math or these. And it's not so much that these beliefs are the problem. The problem is that they're using this as a shield to avoid engaging in that. So if you say to yourself, I'm not good at languages, this is sort of a way of saving face and avoiding having to, you know, try to learn something and maybe find it difficult. Or you did try to learn something and you found it difficult. And so now you've sworn off that activity. You're not going to continue with it. And so I don't want to suggest to people that they have to work on their weaknesses. It's okay to work on things that you're already good at. It's uh, there's the world is full of way too many things to learn. So you do have to make choices about what you're going to learn and what you're not going to learn. But I think it is important to, to pay attention to these kinds of ideas that you have about yourself, because I think for many of us, we have this. It's almost like a straitjacket version of our identity that we can only be this one thing. We're only good at this one thing. And sometimes that can really get in the way of us living the life that we want to live. So how many of us, you know, you studied something in school, turns out that there aren't really great opportunities for it. You're really invested in this track record. And now you're saying to yourself, oh, you know, maybe I should have, you know, learned programming or I should have learned accounting or I should have learned something else. And 
but now I'm too late to start. I can't, I can't switch out. I can't go back to the bottom. And so we get into these narrow corners that we can't think our way out of because we don't really know how to learn. And we don't embrace the idea that we can always change. We can always grow and improve as, as individuals. Yeah, you, you talk about embracing the failure. And it, and it makes me think about a lot of in- entrepreneurs that have been on this show. And it seems like their ability to take on new challenges, not being afraid of failure, is it, pretty prevalent. And so do you see that amongst a lot of the best ultra learners? So I think failure is important. I think one of the things is just being comfortable with being bad at things. So it's not even so much that it comes as failure. It just comes as it's okay that I'm terrible at this. Um, and I think it's the more that you can feel comfortable with being terrible about something, the easier learning becomes. So the classic example, we're talking about learning a new language. When you start learning a new language, you are terrible at it and you're terrible in comparison to English or to whatever language that you speak as a native language. In that language, you're good. Like I can have this conversation very effortlessly with you and use all sorts of big words and articulate concepts and things like this. But as I said, if we had to start over in Polish right now, this conversation, it would grind immediately to a halt. And so that immediate feeling of, oh, wow, I'm not as good at this as I was at something else. It can be kind of a painful feeling. And so I don't, I don't think it is it actually a failure unless you know, you construe it as such as, as that, well, I'm not good at this, therefore I'm a failure. I think if you have the idea, well, I'm not good at this yet, but this is the learning process and it's okay that I'm bad at it. I think the more comfortable you can get with being bad at things, um, the more things that you will learn in life and the more breadth of skill and kind of ironically, the more you feel comfortable being bad at things, the better you get at things. So there's a little bit of a perverse incentive there. Yeah, no, you did a much better job articulating, I think, what I was trying to get out there. So so thank you for that. Yeah. You, you did mention about kind of balancing the, those strengths versus weaknesses. And, and do you have kind of a, a roadmap in your head in, in what you should be putting more time to, whether it be strength or weakness? Right, so I have two thoughts on this. So first, my thought is that I tend to learn things because of interest and curiosity, and I think that's a very powerful force. And so I don't like to just reduce everything to some kind of analysis that like, all right, there's an 80% problem. Like, that's not, you know, we're not trying to be Spock here. We all have things that we want to learn. We all have things that, uh, you know, wouldn't that be cool, right? How often you ask, like, wouldn't that be cool if you could do X, right? How, How many of us have these feelings, but we suppress them because we're afraid of maybe it'll be too much work. Maybe I'll try it and I'll fail. Maybe it'll be too difficult. Or maybe you just have had a string of bad experiences learning something in the past. And then that makes you sort of hesitant to try new things. So my sort of starting point with all these things is just to ask people, you know, what are the things that excite you that, you know, you just, it would be really cool if I could do X. But if we're talking about, you know, where do I think you should invest time in? Because I know one of the big self-improvement topics is whether you should work on improvements or, or in your strengths or or improve your weaknesses. And I actually have a kind of nuanced picture about that because I don't really buy into the idea that we should always work on strengths versus weaknesses, but I do think there's an argument to be made for strengths. So the way I would basically rationalize it is that if it is possible to completely avoid some aspect in your life and you and it turns out to be a weakness, I think it's okay not to do it. Um, so for instance, if you're not good at playing the violin and you don't really have any particular interest, so the first thing I said, you're not excited about playing the violin and you're not very good at it, I think it's okay not to learn to play the violin. I mean, that's going to be probably something that's going to only have a marginal impact on your professional life. 
On the other hand, if you are bad at social skills, there's not really a sense that you can totally avoid social skills in your life, right? It's, it's not really the sense that you can just sort of say, well, but I'm this and I don't have to work on that. That weakness is always going to interfere with your ability to do whatever other job you do. And this is true of not only social skills, but your ability to write effectively, your ability to communicate your ideas, ability to manage your emotions. Even within a particular field, uh, the classic example I gave is that Albert Einstein, for instance, is renowned for being super smart, but what a lot of people don't realize is that he was much more an intuitive physicist than he was a mathematician, that he struggled more with math than he did with coming up with these sort of intuitive theories. And so when it came to general relativity, he actually developed stomach problems because the math was so difficult and he, he worked on it for a number of years and it was very hard. Now, in that instance, if Einstein had said, well, I'm good at this, you know, daydreaming and having thought experiments, but I'm not good at the math, so I won't get good at the math. I'll just work on the thought experiments. That would have totally failed. He wouldn't have been a successful physicist because to do physics, you have to do the math. And so in some sense, I think as well, when we think about our weaknesses, I think that's the real question to ask is that, is this something that I can safely ignore because it's not going to impact my life? But if it is part of my life, if it is something that's going to impact my life and things like health, social skills and all these other things do really impact your life and they are really unavoidable, then I think it does make sense to ask yourself, well, how could I get better at them? Maybe I'm not going to be the best networker in the world, but maybe I will be good enough at meeting people that it won't hinder my performance at my job or it won't prevent me from doing the things I really want to do in life. You mentioned some of these big life skills for you personally. Which one of them have you been able to focus on do you think's provided the most value for yourself? Oh, lots, lots. Like I, I think so I could just list some of them off. I think personal productivity and sort of personal self-efficacy has been a huge thing that I think is super important. And I think the problem is that we often characterize um people who are, let's say, very self-motivated or they seem to be, oh, this person's just a machine, they're so organized and productive. I think we often construe that as a kind of character trait or as a personality thing or it's even sometimes just kind of like, oh, they have a lot of willpower, like it's some kind of resource that they tap, like it's like some spiritual energy or something. And I don't think about it as all at all like that. I think about it as being a skill, that it is – just the same way that, you know, someone who rides a bicycle well has acquired certain skills that someone who can't ride a bicycle doesn't have. I think someone who is very effective at creating their own projects, at motivating themselves, at sticking to things, of creating that these are all skills that require practice. And so I think once you adopt that mindset, then you really see, oh, why have I never finished any of the projects I've started over the last 10 years that's a deficit in skill in my mind, that you are lacking certain skills of how do you organize the project? How do you stay motivated to it? What are the little rules and habits you have for yourself that keep you on track and keep you from getting derailed? These are all very important things, and I think they're often underappreciated by people who, you know, again, liken it just to some sort of, you know, oh, there's this raw energy that this person has that allows them to complete things like that. A few minutes ago, you mentioned interest and curiosity and the importance of that. So one thing I'm, I'm wondering about is the new shiny object and, and people who mm. start trying to learn one thing and then automatically jump to the next. Can, can you just dive deeper on this? So I think there's nothing wrong with dabbling. Let me just put that forth uh, right off the bat, that if you aren't sure whether you want to commit to something, it's totally fine to like, oh, let's just play around with this for a little bit. I think that's totally fine. And realize that you're doing that when you do it. So realize that you are just 
trying it out and don't try to have big expectations that you will 100% be successful with it. So I'll give an example. I, I'm going on a trip to uh, Tokyo, Japan uh, in about probably about two weeks. And I thought, well, it'll be fine. Maybe I'll learn a little bit of Japanese. I have no intention on necessarily sticking with learning Japanese after that trip's done. I think, well, it'll be fine. And if I really like it, maybe I might do a project to learn Japanese in the future. But that's my mindset about it is that it's just to try it out and have fun. And I think if people tried out and had fun with more things, they would learn more things, right? I think, you know, if you just said, oh, you know, I've never done kite surfing. Let's just do that for an afternoon or something and take a lesson. Or I've never done this before. Let's try that. I think that's great. But on the other hand, I think it's important to realize that to really get good at something, even to a level of, you know, intermediacy, often does require serious work. It's not something that just happens by chance. You don't become fluent in Chinese or or a master programmer or an excellent public speaker just because you thought, well, let's just play around for two weeks or <laughs> 10 days or something like that. You do it through a serious effort that's dedicated over time. And like we talked about earlier in the episode, a lot of the things that result in effective learning aren't the default, that they do feel more frustrating, more difficult. And you can develop a kind of appetite for those things. So it is possible to do those things when you dabble. But at the same time, I think for many skills, it is the kind of thing that you have to admit to yourself, okay, if I do really want to get good at this, I'm going to have to commit to it. And so for those things, what I try to do is I try to create an actual project. So I, I decide, okay, what's the scope? How long, how much time am I going to devote? Am I going to be spending a month on this? Am I going to spend three months? Am I going to be spending a year? And then I try to figure out, okay, how much time am I going to spend? Is it something that I want to spend, you know, 80 hours a week or is it something that I'm going to spend 10 minutes a day? Each of those things are different types of projects. And then you organize, okay, what will be the most effective way to learn it? So I talk about uh, how to create these kinds of projects in my book. And I think the right attitude to have is dabble around, play around with things. But when you really want to learn something, when, you know, getting good at something is important to you, you know, walk through the process I outlined in this book, because I think it's worked really well for me for setting up those projects. And then when you have a project, just have the one project at a time. Don't try to have eight or nine different things going concurrently. Yeah, no, that's it's such a vital piece of information, that last part about just trying to focus on the one. Uh, another thing I try to do in, in my businesses, and I'm wondering how this relates to learning, is I try to generate more feedback loops to, to understand yeah. new ways that we could be going with the business. So in terms of learning, what's the value in feedback loops, or do you think they're more detrimental? Feedback is very important. So I would say that um, it's very difficult to learn without any feedback. Um, I think it's important to distinguish that feedback does not necessarily mean another person telling you what you're doing right and wrong. That is a type of feedback and it is a very useful kind, but it is totally possible to get feedback even on something where no one else is even looking at it. So to give an example, if you are painting a painting, you are getting moment to moment feedback about how your brushstrokes are improving or detracting from the painting. Now, there may be some elements of that that you can't see just on your own, that if you had an expert come in and said, oh, this is the mistake you're making, don't do this, that would be helpful. But I think it's important to recognize that if you are in the practice of doing things and actually exploring something by doing it, not just reading a book, let's say, or listening to a podcast, for instance, when you're actually doing things, feedback tends to come out and tends to happen. There are situations where feedback, however, can backfire. And so I talk about a lot of the ways that you want to process feedback so that you don't overreact to it, so that you don't, you know, someone gives you a piece of negative feedback and you shut down and you say, okay, well, screw this. I'm not good at this. I'm not going to do this anymore. And this is surprisingly common. And so 
you know, again, I keep using language learning as an example, but you know, I've talked to people who said, Oh, I went, you know, I went to Paris and I, I tried to order in French and, and the guy was like, Oh, your English is, uh, your French is terrible. I'm going to speak to you in English. And then they felt so dispirited that they didn't practice any more French. And I just, uh, I feel really bad for these people because it is unfortunate when those things happen. But at the same time, if you're getting tons of feedback, if you're getting feedback all the time, so that's not just your only interaction, you've had many interactions, then you'd probably learn that, well, actually most of the time people aren't rude to you. And yeah, that happens occasionally, but usually it's the person trying to help. They're not actually trying to be rude to you. They're just realizing, oh, you don't speak French very well, and I do speak English, and I'm going to try to help you, even though you were trying to practice. And so I think that in some cases where feedback can backfire is when we're so afraid to get feedback. We're so afraid of someone criticizing us or or saying something mean about our progress or just looking stupid that we don't actually practice or we get that feedback and we shut down. And so, again, I talk about in my book lots of ways that you can overcome this, but I think one of the things that you develop as a sort of an intuition about things is which feedback to listen to and which things to be like, okay, yeah, I'm going to put that aside. I'm not going to listen to that right now. Yeah, no, I, I'm really appreciative of the amount of clarity you just brought to that. So thanks for that. You mentioned books and reading, and that's one thing I spend an absorbent amount of time on. So I'm wondering just what are your thoughts in terms of retaining more of what you actually read? Yeah, okay. So this is a, a huge question because uh, the truth is we don't retain very much of what we read. And I think this is, in some cases, it's not the end of the world because I think what you're doing when you read lots and lots of books is not necessarily you want to have a perfect recall of everything said in the book, but you want to kind of absorb the general ideas. And sometimes if you read a lot of things, maybe you're not explicitly recalling the information, but if you read 15 different books on habits, that would influence your, your thinking about your own behavior in a somewhat unconscious way towards habits. Even if I said, okay, what was the principle of X from chapter three of this book? Maybe you don't remember. And so I think it's okay to read books casually. I think it's okay to read books without an explicit plan for recall. But at the same time, I think it's important to realize that you actually won't remember most of the details of the book. You may not even remember some of the big ideas of the book after you read it. And that's not you having a bad memory. That's just how human beings work. And so there's a few strategies you can use to improve the value that you extract from the books you read. Some of them are very easy and don't take very much time, although they do require a little bit of mental effort, so they're not usually a default strategy. And then some of them require more work, but they will really get the value of the book. So the first thing I want to suggest is what is called free recall practice. So free recall practice is basically after you finish a reading session, just close the book, and for it really only has to take about a minute, maybe maybe 30 seconds. Just close your eyes and try to remember everything that you read. So try to remember what was talked about, what was the main idea, what was the point that the author was making, and if they suggested any tips or pieces of advice or things you might want to use later, what were those? See how many you can recall. And doing this kind of free recall is very instructive for two reasons. One, it's actually really difficult, even right after you've read something, to recall most of what was discussed. So for the people listening to this podcast right now, I highly recommend just pausing the podcast and what did we talk about? What did we talk about for the last, you know, 40 minutes or so? And it's really hard to remember a lot of these things. You know, oh yeah, they, well, they were talking about this and then 
And then I was on my commute and, and then there, I got on that intersection and I wasn't really listening for a while and it's hard to actually recall things. So that's part of the reason is just to clue you into how little you actually remember about things, which is helpful because if you really did want to remember it, it's like, oh, I didn't remember that. Let's go back to that page and, and look over that again. The second thing that this does is that even just the act of doing free recall, which I, I talk about extensively in the book, just doing this act allows you to remember things better. So that minute you spend after you doing the review may actually be more beneficial than the, let's say, 10 minutes you spent reading for your long-term ability to remember just because practicing recalling something will be able to make it easier for you to remember in the future. The, the sort of second tip I would have, and so this is, so free recall is a pretty easy thing you can practice. Um, after you finish a book, you might want to spend even like five, 10 minutes just trying to, on a piece of paper, summarize the main points of the book. And then you can just slide that paper into the book and you can pull it out later and read it again if you ever want a reminder. But the other thing that I find uh, helpful, and this is particularly useful if you really want to apply a book. So you got a book and you're like, I really want to be able to do the thing they're talking about the book. So maybe that book is ultra learning. Maybe it's another self-improvement book or business book that you're reading. And what I really recommend for that is that uh, before you read the book, write down what your intentions are of how you want to use the book. And this is very helpful because it automatically starts those thinking processes so that when you're listening to something, you're automatically trying to tie it back to situations you might be able to use it, which increases the chance that you will actually use it. So to use my book as an example, if you were reading Ultra Learning, it would be really helpful to say, you know what, I'd really like to do this, or I'd like to get better at this, or this is the thing that I'm hoping this book will help me with in my life. And you, you write that intention out. So when you're reading it, you can start looking for things that might fit with that picture. The second thing that you can do is after you're done the book or after you've reached some sort of milestone in the book where you've learned enough, you can start to make a little project to try to integrate it into your daily habits or into your daily life. And these don't have to be huge things. They can be small things. So even like this podcast right now, you might say, you know, what, I'm going to make a habit of every time I do a reading thing session, when I close the book, I'm going to spend, you know, 20 seconds just trying to do some free recall. It's pretty simple. It's not very big, but it is something that you could improve your effectiveness. Maybe after you read this book, you'll want to do a whole ultra learning project. You'll want to do something that is, you know, I want to get really good at a skill and really dive deep. Or maybe you'll just want to make a few tweaks to what you're doing right now. But I think if you go in with that intention before you read the book, and then you also go in with a plan after you've read the book, then you'll really get the meat out of the book in a way that you probably won't when you just read it casually. You mentioned setting out that plan. So I'm really intrigued now as you were setting out to write the book, Ultra Learning, what did that plan look like for you? And then what, what was your actual process day to day like to accomplish this? Oh, yeah. So this book was challenging for me for a couple reasons. And I think one of the big reasons is that this topic has been basically my life for the last 10 years. And so that puts a lot of pressure on trying to write a good book because you know, for some authors, maybe it's just a topic that they've developed a curiosity in. Maybe they spend a couple years and then they start writing. And, you know, there's a lot of authors, they churn out a book every year or two. And so, okay, now to the new topic and now to the new thing. And for me, like this was the thing that I have kind of obsessed my life over over the last 10 years. So I knew that I wanted to write something that I thought would do that justice and, and not just put something out because I wouldn't be able to get a chance to write this book again. So that definitely made it feel a little bit more daunting to begin. 
But the other reason that it was challenging for me is that I'm not an academic expert. I'm someone who, you know, I spent my life doing projects and, and learning things and working with other students. And so I have some hands-on experience, but that's not the same as being a scientist. That's not the same as having a Harvard PhD in cognitive science and understanding the nuances of a lot of the research. And I knew when I was writing this book that I wanted it to talk about research. I wanted it to talk about science of learning in an intelligent way and not just so that I could have an interesting study to talk about but so that if I brought up some topic I felt you know at least reasonably confident that this wasn't wildly off base what people who spend their whole lives researching that particular subtopic think about it and so that itself was a challenge and so I had to organize it around okay, well, what are the are the areas of research I'm going to do? But then how do I proceed on that research? And so, you know, for each chapter, I'm spending about a month and reading, you know, thousands of pages of different books and textbooks and uh, journal articles and things like that to try to synthesize it so that I can, you know, present a chapter that I think does justice to all of that research. What do you think was the most interesting piece of literature you came across during your research? Oh, yeah, so much stuff. Some of it surprised me. So the the research on feedback, I kind of went into feedback thinking more feedback is always good. And it was very interesting to see how much research there is that doesn't say that, that there are many situations where feedback can be detrimental. And so that really sort of pivoted me to thinking, you know, not to dissuade people against getting feedback, because it does generally seem to be the case that feedback helps. But just being more selective about what feedback you pay attention to and how you process the feedback, because that seems to be a very important moderator of how useful feedback is. Um, another thing which I had, I was aware of before writing the book, but really blew me away with how deep the research is, is the research on transfer. So uh, I even read a, a very excellent book on on transfer. And it's just study after study after study after study after study, basically showing that we don't apply what we learn to new contexts very well. And this that this particularly applies to what we learn in classrooms and that many, many, many attempts have been found to try to get students to learn quite general skills from classrooms and that they almost always fail <laughs> utterly. And so it's challenging in this case because I think our intuitions about what we want from learning are even to have quite general skills that apply to a million different things. And the fact that that doesn't seem to be the case is not only an indictment perhaps of our paradigm that we have for education, but I think it's also really revealing in how the brain actually really works. And so one of the metaphors that I find very interesting is that a lot of people talk about the brain like it's a muscle. So that you get good at learning things, it's just sort of like, okay, well, like you have a muscle, you, you, you lift weights in the gym with your bicep, and then you go out and your biceps are stronger if you're lifting things in real life. Now, maybe there's going to be some slight differences there, but people generally accept that that's true. If you lifted a lot of weights, you should be stronger in real life. Whereas what we find is that um, learning and especially adaptations to the brain tend to be a lot more specific. And so people who have general skills, it's usually the case that they have them because they've learned so many specific things that they're able to build abstractions on top of those specific things that do generalize. But that when you teach people things for the first time, that they tend to use them in fairly narrow ways that get stuck to the situations they learn them in. And that's often very difficult because when you're talking about a book that does want to talk about big principles or, or, or you're talking about a classroom that does want to talk about abstract ideas, um, it's often the case that people don't apply the concepts in the ways that you would like. And so 
I think there's two main lessons for that. One of them is just to be aware of this. And the other is just to realize that a lot of real learning that actually makes you better as a person is done through doing things and actually doing things in a way that's substantially similar to the thing that you want to get good at rather than doing some kind of toy activity or, or makeshift problem. Yeah, I mentioned I'm a big fan of reading. So what was that book uh, that really dives deep on transfer? So uh, it's by Robert Haskell, and I want to say that the title is Transfer of Cognitive Skill, but I might be mixing up the title. But if you just type Transfer and Robert Haskell, uh, it's sort of an older textbook, but it just covers um, basically all the all the research that shows how difficult transfer is. Oh, fantastic. Are there any other books that you really enjoy or recommend? Books that I really enjoyed and recommended. So that was a that was a good one because it was very comprehensive and I got a lot of value out of that particular book. I did read a lot of papers. So it's not a book, but I would look at the uh, literature review by Jeffrey Carpicki, and I forget his co-author, um, on the testing effect and retrieval. And he has a big thing summarizing, which is basically what I discussed already, all of the research he had, this is sort of a gateway to all the research that's been done on how testing yourself and trying to practice recall is much more effective than review, but also all the different little ways that this effect manifests itself. And, and I covered a number of those in the book, uh, and that was a big sort of jumping off point for that chapter in the book. Um, another good meta-analysis is uh, Angelo Denisi and uh, Abraham Kluger's, um, I think it's 1991, meta-analysis on feedback intervention. And so if you just do, yeah, closure, feedback, uh, meta-analysis, you'll get that one. And that one was also very interesting because, again, it moderated my opinion because they did this big analysis and found that in, you know, almost 40% of the studies that they found, feedback actually had a negative effect on performance. So it's certainly not the case that feedback is always beneficial. And so they sort of outline not only their theories about why it might influence each other, but also links to other research about, you know, how sometimes if you get feedback while you're performing a task, it can sort of distract your attention from performance and lower your performance. There's also some situations where, you know, like I said, if you give someone a particularly piece of negative feedback, um, it can reduce their motivation to learn well, but also sort of ironically, I didn't expect this, but even praise, if you tell someone, oh, you're so good, you're so smart, that actually also has a negative effect on learning, despite the fact that teachers and students love it. Uh, it turns out there's actually quite a bit of research showing that this is also bad, uh, just because as soon as you think that you're doing something really well, you tend to put less effort in. Yeah, uh, I'm sure the listeners are already saying, oh my gosh, there's so much here that's really making me think differently. And that's what I've really enjoyed about the book. I'm intrigued though, if there was one person you could just spend some extra time with and maybe even spend a week with them and learn about their learning process, who would that be? Mm, well, if we're, if we're going into a hypothetical territory, then I'm going to pick someone who is currently deceased, but I would pick Richard Feynman. So Richard Feynman has been my basically intellectual hero and sort of my standard of, you know, what kind of thinker do I want to be, although I will never reach his heights. But he was not only a Nobel Prize winning physicist, but he was a real iconoclast. He was, you know, very against the sort of rote learning and, and learning things without really understanding them. And he had a real kind of curious streak where he would just, ah, I'm just going to go learn the bongo drums or just learn lock picking or just learn Japanese or just, you know, oh, let's just try to do my own art exhibit for no reason. And so he had a certain fearlessness to him and confidence and just a sense of exploration that I think 
you know, even for me, I find that it's hard to fully reach that level. And, and I think that we would all do so much better if we could go further. So a conversation with him is probably not going to be possible unless time travel gets invented. However, I highly recommend also his autobiography, Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman, which is one of my favorite uh, biographies. And so I think if you like these topics, then you'll enjoy learning from that as well. Yeah, no, that was a book I absolutely loved. And we actually covered uh, the Feynman technique on a on a solo episode on this podcast. So you oh, perfect. Can, can go back. Yeah I'm, a, yeah, I'm a big fan of him as well. Last one. So besides Feynman, who do you think is just the most impressive learner you, you've studied? Hmm. Impressive learner. I've met a lot of people that I think are quite impressive in learning and that they've done things that are quite incredible. I mean, I've spent a lot of my book uh, discussing a lot of these people. I think the people that impress me the most are often the people who have built up enough depth that they can just transition between different topics and do it fairly well. So I think where I'm more impressed of is someone who, you know, there's obviously the specialist or the person who spent their lives researching a particular subject, but I'm almost more impressed by the person who can just take a topic that, you know, they're not an expert in and they can talk about it really intelligently after a short period of time. So I don't know whether it's to compliment him on his learning ability, but I really enjoy reading um, Slate Star Codex. That's a, a blog. And I really enjoy reading him just because every once in a while he'll just do some kind of like deep dive into some random topic. And I'm always like blown away by how insightful he is, even though he doesn't maybe have the background for it. And what was that Slate Star Slate Star Codex, Scott Alexander. I know it's a weird name for a blog, but uh, very, very interesting guy. I do actually, I, I even benefited from his, uh, some of his research. Uh, it went into my book. Gotcha. Fantastic. So th- there's three people who have come up on this podcast so much and mostly because I really enjoy their work. Cal mm. Newport, James Clear, and oh, Der- yeah. Derek Sivers, and all three uh, wrote great praise for your book. So I know a lot of the listeners are big fan of them. They also were a fan of your work. So any listeners yeah. interested in that that must have been exciting for you to get that uh that praise by them yeah well they, these have been friends of mine for years i mean cal newport we've been friends for over a decade and and james clear uh you know i got to know him before atomic habits and i've, I've been a big admirer of his approach to writing um and and Derek sivers as well and so you know it's it's nice but uh i think it's also i'm i'm happy that they liked the book because um, you know, you try to do you try to do good work, and and they're definitely doing great work. Yeah, no, it's a testament to the book you put out. So, so thank, thank you. you for putting that out there. I'm sure the listeners are dying to to know more where they can stay connected with you. Obviously, we'll have sure. links to you, and obviously where they can pick up the book. But where do you want them going? Sure. So, if you want to check uh, my website out, it's uh, scotthyoung.com. That's s c o t t h y o u n g dot com, and I have uh, over a thousand articles there on all sorts of topics that you might be interested in: motivation, self improvement, learning, productivity, all these kinds of ideas, life philosophy, and then obviously uh, the book Ultra Learning, which you can get in Amazon, you can get it at Barnes and Noble, wherever you get your books. Uh, there's also an Audible version where uh, I'm narrating it, so. 
it's uh, read read by me. And uh, yeah, if, if you're not tired of listening to my voice by now, you can also listen to the book and and get it on your car or in your commute or something like that. Yeah, and then when the listeners check out your website, make sure you guys subscribe to the newsletter because Scott puts out a ton of great content. Uh, I get to look at Thank that you. all the time, so I appreciate that. But yeah, if you go in the if you join the newsletter, I, I we have um, a free chapter of the book too, so you can also get that and, and read a little bit of it ahead of time. Fantastic. Well, Scott Young, I can't thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There. Oh, thank you. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.